And I will remind you, this is the fourth message of the series. So where we started was the foundational priority. This is the most important part that we exist for the glory of God. It's, it's about Him. Jeremy, Jeremy began leading us this morning with that reminder. It's about the glory of God centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's, it's the gospel that makes us who we are. That's why we're here, because Christ has come and saved us and called us His people through the gospel, right? And the work of the Spirit, who unites us, who dwells us, who moves and shapes and forms us. It's His mission that we've been given because He exists in us. He dwells in us to see that mission accomplished. Go, make disciples of all nations. That includes discipling one another and discipling the world, making learners of Jesus, followers of Christ who are obedient to Him, baptized in His name, right? Uh, so that's our, our priority. And then we've talked about how that fleshes out. We, 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 we spoke about the importance then of because of who we are in Christ, as he, how He has drawn us together as His body, then unity is a, is a, is a value, needs to be a, a primary value because He's unified us. And that unity is beautifully displayed in the diversity that's been unified. That God has called us all from all kinds of different backgrounds and places, whether that's you know, cultural or social or economic or ethnic, whatever. God takes all and builds a family, a body, one people. So the beauty of our diversity in the unity that we have in Christ is, is something we ought to value. Also, we've then talked about living in community. We looked at Acts chapter 2, and we saw the example of the early church who were existing in that unified community, opening the word together, listening to the teaching and the preaching of the apostles, breaking bread, being in one another's homes, loving one another, generously serving and giving to one another. This is a picture of the united family, to live in community and now we're going to move into a fourth value, which has vision attached to it. And that is that if we are, we're not just a church that lives in community with, with our eyes turned inward, but, but we're a church that also lives in the city with eyes turned outward to our neighbor. So that's our fourth vision value. It's that we're a church that's in and for the city church that's in and for the city. And that's why Andy just read to us our sermon text this morning in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. I'm going to read it again, uh, just verses 4 to 7. Again, with that, with that now in all of our minds, that we're called to be a people, God's people, who are in and for the city that he has placed us. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, he's saying, live life there, right? Live life there. And do not decrease, multiply there. And he says, and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now you're wondering, okay, that's, that's a new sentence. That wasn't what Andy read. I'm going to explain why I just read that in a minute. But do you, you see the context here? God is saying, you're about, to, you're about to move. My people, they're living in Jerusalem. Primarily, they're living in Israel, and, and they're in Judah, and they're about to be uh, exiled. We, we know that story. If you've been around here long enough, and we've, we've, we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah together, we've gone through enough of the Old Testament to know that because of the sin of God's people, he, he told them, you're, you're not following me, you're going to be overcome by your enemies. And that's, this is Jeremiah's time period. This is when it's happening here. So for context's sake, God had given Judah and, and other nations into the hands of the big dominant world empire at that time, the big city, Babylon. And I want to ask you to flip back probably one or two pages at the most to chapter 27. I'm going to, I'm going to show you that decree. Here we see how God has given them over to Babylon. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 27. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Jeremiah being a prophet, thus says the Lord to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. These are symbols of bondage, right? Make straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So this is not just a word for Judah, but it's a word for many different nations. What God is about to tell them about the power of Babylon. He says, give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I've given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. So God's giving them this decree that I'm the king, I'm the creator, I'm sovereign, I'll do whatever I please, I will set up and establish governments and powers and authorities as I choose, and I have decreed Babylon is it right now. It's interesting here that he calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. We know from the life of Nebuchadnezzar that he's anything but a servant of God, and yet God is saying, it doesn't matter, I'm God. And I'm sovereign. And so this is, this is the, the judgment on you, Judah, and just my, my will. For now, Babylon is the seat of power, and you're all about to go. And you're going to serve, and you're going to be in exile there. And he says here something about the time frame of that. And we see in other places more specificity. But he says, Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his grandson, he's saying, this is going to be for a while. You're going to go for the long haul. And in fact, we're told it's going to be 70 years, right? 
So this is not going to be some in and out thing. This is not some blip on the radar. Most of you, this is the rest of your lives. And why I read those extra sentences in chapter 29 is he's saying, if somebody tells you otherwise, they're lying to you. Because there will be prophets who will try to tell you, oh, we're just, this isn't going to be a big deal. We'll be in and out. And God says, no, I'm telling you, this is for the long haul. It's for the long haul. And so as we get to chapter 29, God tells his people through the prophet Jeremiah, because this is you for the rest of most of your lives, this is how I want you as my people to engage with and live in the, the earthly city. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a theology of the city. We're going to talk about an all, uh, basically this, this same question. How should God's people relate to and live in the earthly city? And if you're a believer this morning, that's you living in Chicago, right? We all live in the earthly city. All of us do. Wherever you live, you're living in the earthly city. Uh, and so we're going to discuss that theology. And I'm, I'll say up front that, that one of the, uh, just one of the best understandings of this and treatment, excuse me, specifically of this passage that I've, that I've heard has really shaped the way I think about doing ministry here, living where we live, uh, was reading that I did early on in my ministry from Tim Keller, who's in New York City, who's thought a lot about this idea of, of how God's people relate to the city. So I'm, I'm telling you that because I'm, I'm saying I'm going to draw a lot on what I've learned from Tim. This is not going to be a lot of original material. This is not Bill Pinalto copyrighted anything, right? Um, I think you're going to be encouraged by it. This is, this is one of my favorite topics uh, because of who we are and where we exist and because of I, I, what God wants to do through his people. So let's discuss this, this, this theology. I'll, I'll add some theological remarks at the end of, of Keller's uh, theology here, and then we're going to discuss some practical application. So again, I said Jeremiah 29, this, this idea of God's people being in Babylon. Why, why look at that? Because the, the, the context has some similarities to us. Again, this is Babylon. We're talking about a major global city. We're talking about a, 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 a place where you've got a huge city. You've got a city that's, that's hostile, uh, you've got a city that's, that's sort of marked by the world, the system of the world. And within that city, you've got people from all over the world being drawn in. Most of them not voluntarily, but drawn in. So you've got this big melting pot of culture and people from all over the place. And you can imagine, because we live in a city like that, that brings lots of tension, right? There's lots of opportunity there for we don't understand each other, we don't know each other, we don't get along. And so, again, it's, it's, it's similar to Chicago. It's similar to New York or London or Hong Kong or any other global city. It's that kind of context. You've got different worldviews, philosophies, cultures, religions, and fragmentation. Lots of fragmentation. Can you relate to that when I say that? Like, I'm not the only one who feels that way about the way, where we live, right? And it's funny, fragmentation, because, because everybody has a different perspective on why it's fragmented, right? Or what, the, what, are the, what are the things that, what are the oppressive things in society? If you talk to conservatives, they'll say, this place is way too liberal. And you talk to liberals, and they say, this place is way too conservative, right? 
You talk to different religious groups and they may say, we, we feel like, you know, we don't have a voice. You talk to different socioeconomic groups or, or ethnic groups and minority groups. We don't have a voice. Where do we fit in all this? And I think, increasingly so, we hear from a lot of Christians who say we're, they're beginning to feel like exiles in their own country. So I wonder if you feel that way this morning. So how do we relate to the earthly city as God's people? So here's what we're going to look at this morning. is We're going to look, we're going to look at chapters 27, 28, and 29 and see three ways. Three ways that you can relate to the earthly city. Two of them are wrong, and one of them is God's way. you got two wrong ways and a right way. The wrong way being Babylon's way, which we'll see in a minute here. The other wrong way being the, 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 the false prophets, those who are lying to the people of God, their way, which is wrong. And then ultimately God's way, which is right. So let's examine the first wrong way. Babylon's agenda for God's people in the city. What was Babylon's desire for God's people? Well, the Babylonians were experts at this point in how to deal with unruly nations. Here they are. They're the world power. They're dominating. They're, they're, they're exiling people. They're bringing them into the city. Uh, they're, they're pretty good at it at this point. And we, we can see kind of how they did that. Specifically, a great way to look at how they did that was looking at the book of Daniel. Because Daniel and his friends were some of those, the, the bright and the gifted young men in the Jewish society who were carted off into Babylon. And what were they told to do? Well, they were basically told to assimilate, right? You're going to bow down to our God. You're going to have our education. You're going to take our kinds of names. You're going to be assimilating in. So wrong way number one, Babylon's agenda is one of assimilation. And how did the Babylonians get to that? Well, it's trial and error, but you can understand how they got to that. Throughout the course of human history, there have been three primary strategies for dealing with uh, exiles for dealing with captives. The first one is to expel them, right? To expel them. Uh, you come in, you're the dominant power, you say, we're going to take this land, we're going to take your riches, and you all go. And you just sort of send people as refugees off into the wilderness, right? But what's the problem with that? The problem with that is when you expel people, they tend to organize and realize that once the chaos all dies down that, hey, you just took our stuff, and they get kind of ticked off. And they decide maybe they're going to come back. And this time they're going to come back with billy clubs and shields and a bad attitude, right? It doesn't work real well. So Babylonians weren't doing that. The second thing that we see oftentimes is subjugation. We see that in, in Egypt, right? When, when the, the Jews were in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule, they put them into slavery. They put them into servitude. Right? They put their foot on them, and they made their lives very difficult. And again, that doesn't work real well, because ultimately what will happen is you get uprisings, and they come back, and they fight you. and they, you know, So the Babylonians said, no, that what we're going to do, and it was a radical approach at the time, we're going to bring all these people in as exiles. We're taking over but again, we're going we're gonna to give you jobs. We're going to let you live in our city. You can have houses here. You can build your lives here. 
you can, the, here's, here's the only stipulation. You, you got to be like us. You, you got to stop being what you were. You can live, and you can be, live very comfortably, but, but you need to start looking like us. That's assimilation. You can make money. You can have families. You got to look like us. And so the, the, the assimilation begins culturally, intellectually, socially, spiritually, so that a people lose their distinctiveness. And when a people lose their distinctiveness, within a generation or two, what happens? They're gone. They're still there, but they're not. They're Babylonian now. So the question is, is this how God's people should approach the city? Should we just sort of resort to and acquiesce to this idea of assimilation? Well, can't beat them, join them. You know, let's just start, let's start looking more like the world around us. The answer to that question is a resounding no from God. That's not what he says to his people here. He says, you're going in. However, he says, don't decrease. Increase. Build houses. Live life. Take jobs. Take wives. Do all that kind of stuff. But, but do not decrease. In other words, go in, but don't lose your distinctiveness. Why? Because I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. I'm sending you in, but I'm going to bring you back. Don't forget me, and don't forget who you are. So wrong way number one would be to go with assimilation. Here's wrong way number two. This is the false prophet's agenda. For the people in the city, and we'll call this one tribalism. So you have assimilation over here. This one we're going to call tribalism. Look at chapter 28. Chapter 28. Here's one of these prophets that God warns about. His name is Hananiah. And in chapter 8, verse 1, in that same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me, Jeremiah saying this, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So he's saying, here's a prophecy from God. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'll also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So in other words, Hananiah is telling these people, look, we're not going to be there very long, so don't plant roots there. Don't plant roots there. Don't go in. Don't go in. I mean, you, you're going to be there, but think of it more as like, you know, a vacation than life. Don't go in. Hang on the outside and stick together. You can take from the city what you need. If we're going to be there for a little while, take what you need to survive. But ultimately, stay away and expect to leave as soon as we can. And again, that's in direct conflict with what God had said. 
Hananiah is a false prophet. Look at verse 12 of chapter 28. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars off the neck of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, You have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him, for I have given to him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you've made this people trust in a lie. Hananiah is saying, look, let's just, let's, let's stick to our tribe here and not do what the Lord has said we should do. We can exploit the city. You can make money there. You can get your food there. You can increase your own wealth and power. Again, just don't go in. Don't enter it. Regard it as filthy. Regard it as immoral. Despise this place. Just take from it. But don't love it. So you've got these two wrong ways. God is saying both. Not, not what I've said. You've got assimilation, which ultimately says, look, you fit right in. And you've got tribalism, which says on the outside, I'm going to smile and take what I can get. But on the inside, I disdain them. And I, and I think those are important things to recognize because these represent two of the most common responses, I think the two most common responses of God's people to the earthly city. Think about that. What's what's been sort of the message of the church throughout the course of of your life or the course of recent history? You can see it happening all around. You've got all kinds of, of churches saying the message here is let's be relevant and assimilate, right? So we're, we're not going to try to be, our distinctiveness, is, it's causing problems, so let's remove the barriers of our distinctiveness, which usually then begins to entail, let's tone down some of this Bible stuff, let's tone down some of you know, the, the things that can rock the boat, let's assimilate. And you've got lots of people living their lives as professing to follow Jesus, who in very reality look like they're, they're just a product of the world. That's true of, of some of us, right? And then you've got the, the other side of that coin. Let's just be tribalists here. I hate this place. I'm just all, all, they're all sinners out there. So we're just, I, I, I got I to be here to make money. I have, I have to have my job. I'm gonna, I got to take the L tomorrow to work and I'll smile on the train on the way down, but I'm on the inside, I'm just going to be I can't stand this place. I can't stand these people, these sinners. And let's as, let's as church, let's, let's truly make little holy huddles and have nothing to do with, other than exploiting them for what we can get, let's have nothing to do with loving them. They ought to sound familiar. I think this is the two most common responses of the church. And listen to the word of God. That's not what he desires. So what does he desire? What's the right way? What's God's agenda for his people in the city? Again, verse 5 through 7 of chapter 29. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. In marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply 
do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Seek its welfare. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God says, move in and stay. Move in and increase. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. You know what God's saying? God's saying, don't despise it and don't become like it. Transform it. Transform it by your presence as my people. And this must have sounded radically astounding. Think about this. None of us have experienced quite what God's people here are experiencing. Absolutely being conquered, overcome, kicked out, and pulled into a new place against their will, and God's saying, love it. Love these people, love this place, transform this place. That had to be a head-scratcher for so many of them. We're supposed to pray for this city? We're supposed to root for this city? We're supposed to love it. God says, yep, that's what I'm saying. Now, that only makes sense when you, when you fit it in the context of, of the whole picture of the Bible. What, what is God's theology of the city? Augustine has some great words on this. He, his classic work, City of God, basically says that the, the, the whole history of the world can be summed up as a tale of two cities. You've got the city of God and the city of man. Say it the other way around. You've got the city of man, the city of God. The whole history of the world summed up as a tale of two cities. The city of man, this idea of the earthly city, we see a picture of that in Isaiah 26. It's, 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 it's always represented as, as a place that operates on pride. It operates on pride to, to, to get for me. It's about power. It's about achievement. It's about making a name for myself. And what's the result There's not only a result that's described in Scripture, but there's a result that I bet that you can relate to and say, I understand that because I see it and I experience it. The result is this. It's exhaustion and oppression. It's exhaustion and oppression. Why? Because it's exhaustion because you're always trying to keep up. Right? I've got to keep up. I've got to keep up with the Joneses. I've got to keep up with my neighbors. I've got to keep up with the, 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 the economic pressures. And I've got to keep up with the appearances. And... It's exhausting, and it's oppressive because in order to keep up, what do you often have to do? You often got to climb over the people around you to get there, don't you? Or they've got to climb over you. You got to step on others in your path. There's a, there's a very short word that describes that. It's called sin. That's the city of man. Here's the city of God. It's not defined by pride, but by peace. Seek its welfare. Seek its well-being. The the, the picture of the city of God is, is ultimately a pointer to the new Jerusalem, right? The heavenly city. The city of peace. Not a city of exhaustion. Not a place of stepping on each other, but a place of grace. And a place of love. 
Why is that? Here's, here's the difference. Because the people in the city of God know who they are in Christ. I don't have to achieve my status. I don't have to prove my worth. The peace of Christ has shown me that I, my worth is found in him. That my status is found in him. I don't have to achieve that or strive for it. I have it. And because I have it, I don't have to take it from you or anybody else, but I'm free to give it. The city of man says, it's your life to benefit mine. The city of God says, no, my life to benefit yours. That's the difference. Now, here's the thing. Up until the time of Jeremiah, and I wonder if you thought this way too, people thought that the city of God was strictly a future concept. That's a future idea. That's, that's eschatological, right? And that the city of man is just, that's present reality. Now, there's some truth to that, but think about this. It, there, there's something more here that, that can be said about that. Is it that black and white? Is, it, is, that, is that just all future and, and, and present can only be the city of exhaustion and get for me? If that's the case, then, then, then explain this. God says to them, Move in and love it. Move in and seek its welfare. Move into Babylon. My people, move in. Jesus comes. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Matthew chapter 5, he says this. He says, you're the light of the world. You are, not, not you will be, but you are a city set on a hill. And that cannot be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on a stand. It gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. He says that to his disciples now. Right? And the good deeds that he speaks of here are deeds of service. Love them. Give to them. Sacrifice for them. Jesus essentially says that the city of God isn't just a place or a time, but rather it's anywhere and everywhere where the presence of his people are. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. You're the city of God in the midst of the city of man. And this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where he says all this, where he explains that Christians are to take things like sex and money and power and instead of using them to exploit and to take, to give. To use them in life-giving ways. And so we bear witness to God by inhabiting the city in this way. Not by assimilating not through tribalism, but to say, let's seek the good of the city for the city's sake. For the city's sake. In order to glorify God there. When Augustine continues in that, that great work, uh, City of God, City of Man, he, he, he talks about when, when we're born again as Christians, we, 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 we receive dual citizenship. He talks about that dual citizenship saying that you, you are citizens of the earthly city still, 
but you're now in Christ, citizens of the heavenly city. And he says, while we're in that state, be the best citizens of the earthly city you can be because you are citizens of the heavenly one. And when Jeremiah tells the exiles to seek the peace of the city, do you know what the word for peace in the Hebrew language is? You, you all know it. Shalom. You've heard it. You know what it means? It's a deep word. It's a broad word. If you look it up in a concordance, you get definitions like this. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, fullness, rest, harmony. It's the absence of agitation or discord. And so here God says to the prophet to his people, seek these things. Not just for you, but for them. In its well-being, you'll find your well-being. You'll find your welfare. You're to root for the city. You're to work for the city. You're to pray for the city. So let me ask the, the very obvious application question that we all need to wrestle with this morning. Do you feel this way about Chicago? Do you feel this way about Chicago? Think about it. What, when, you, when you're riding the L tomorrow or you're going down Lakeshore Drive and you're heading into the office, what's your disposition? Here, not just here, right? If you don't, then, I, then I, I think if we don't, we have, to, we have to honestly say and ask, are we truly living out the gospel in our city? Are we, are we bringing Christ to Chicago and bringing Chicago to Christ, or is that just a slogan? Right? Do I, do I say that? Do I, do I believe it? Do I feel it? Am I care? Do I care? When God says, love your neighbor as I have loved you, love your brother as I have loved you, do, do, I, do I know and experience the love of God in such a way that I, I'm compelled to love my neighbor? The example of the early Christians was remarkably, powerfully that idea. Love your neighbor. We looked at that in, 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 in Acts 22 last week of how they love one another, but if, if, if you know much about church history, you'll know that very soon thereafter, the, the, the ensuing century or two, there was the expansion of the church, the expansion of the gospel into, into Europe, and what was also beginning to expand throughout that region were terrible, terrible plagues. Terrible. I mean, wiping out whole villages, wiping out whole towns. And, and what, was, what was happening was, was people, as you could imagine, were fleeing. They were running for safety. Save, save me, save my family. we got to get out. This disease is going to overtake us. And, and everybody fleed except for one group of people, and it was the Christians. And they stayed because they said, you know what? There are people here who can't leave, who are sick and who are dying, and somebody's got to take care of them. And that's the example of, of the gospel. That's who we were. We're sick and dying. Jesus came for us. How can we not stay and, 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 and care for them?
And they, many of them gave their lives to do it. They lost their lives. They got sick. They contracted the disease. But you know what they spread? They spread the gospel. And many historians will look back and say the, 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 the turning point of the explosion of the spread of Christianity and the gospel in those centuries, those early centuries, and on that continent were in large measure due to the testimony of the believers who said, we're going to love our city, even if it costs us our lives. We're going to seek its welfare. The spread of Christianity was the result. And the gospel, again, models this, right? The gospel models. Jesus left the heavenly city in order to come and enter into the earthly city to seek the shalom of all of us. I'm going to quote Augustine one more time. I promise, no more Augustine quotes, but he's, he's good stuff. He says this. He says, The city of God is the only city not built on blood violently taken, but on blood freely given. That's a good gospel quote. Let me give you a... a, a that's the theology of the city. Let me, let me add one comment to it, a theological comment to it, just to clarify something that may be confusing to you, having listened to that and say, okay, that sounds good. But one of, the, one of the critiques that you'll often hear when people are talking about moving in and loving and, and, and building, doing kingdom work and, and, and seeking the peace and the shalom of a city is you'll hear the objection, well, well ultimately, isn't that not what the church is called to look forward to. Isn't, 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 aren't things supposed to get worse? We're not, we're not going to usher in the new Jerusalem, right? I mean, things are going to get worse, and, and then Jesus is going to have to come back and, and judge the world, and that's when He'll usher in the, the heavenly city. And until then, we should be abstaining from it. We should just have our sights set on the coming one. That's a, I mean, that's, a, that's an understandable objection, um, but I want to say this, that's not the idea of, of a post-millennialism where, where we're going to usher in the kingdom and Jesus is just going to come back to the utopia that we've made. That's not what Keller is advocating nor me, okay? Not at all. Um, I believe that ultimately God has to establish the perfect heavenly city. In fact, what does he say to his people here? He says, go in and I will bring you back. He doesn't say go in and transform it so that I'll come there. I'll bring, I'll bring you back. God has to do that. But he still says to them, in the meantime, go in and live there like you live here. Right? Live there like you live here. So it's not a post-millennial idea. It's just, this, it's just this outlook that says, you know what? We, we should have a, a, a positive view towards our mission here, that, that God will use his people to bring peace even in the earthly city. So what's some practical application for us as a church? Where's the, what's, the, what's sort of the vision then and the values for us as Edgewater? The first thing I want to say is this. I think there's an important call here for all of us to plant roots and increase in the city that God has placed us. Plant roots and increase here. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, 
there's a common cycle of people, and I'm not just saying Christians, I'm saying people in general who, who come into the city, who come into our neighborhood, and sort of view it as a stepping stone to the next thing. Not, not necessarily in an evil way or anything like that, no ill intent, but it's like, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I've just gotten out of school, I've got my first job, you know, but when, when I get married or when I get, you know, the, the next step on the career ladder or when kids start to come, I mean, that's, I'm out of here, right? This isn't the kind of place that I want to stay and raise a family or, or, you know, deal with property taxes and all those kinds of things that can make it difficult. And it is difficult. And yet I want to encourage us to the extent that we can and the extent that God is leading us to plant roots here. Plant roots. And if the Lord is not ultimately leading you to stay here, there's nothing... There's no condemnation to that. God needs people in the suburbs, too. God needs people in rural areas, too. And you know what? That's the city of man, too. Schaumburg is a city. Right? But the, but the point is this. Wherever you are, be there. Be all there. Plant roots there. And seek to increase. Not to assimilate. Not to distance but to bless. And I am saying, this place, sorry, be careful, this place needs more people like that. Seek the economic shalom. Do we, do we think about those kinds, economic shalom? Um, cultural and artistic shalom? Are we thinking about those things as believers? Are, are, we, are we seeking to, to actually look for opportunities? How can we bless our neighbors? How can we bless our community? Not just with the proclamation of the gospel, but, but ultimately to seek the peace that God has called us to seek there, to build houses, to have jobs, to, 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 to make families. Is that something that, that we're able to do? Is, is that something that everyone is able to seek after just as equally and as availab- availably as I am? Or are there ways that I can bless my neighbor to seek their peace so that they can increase too? Seek the political shalom of the city. I say that because I think it's an important way for us to, to, to live out this call. He's saying, love, root for, increase, bring peace. And you know what happens when we talk about politics and, and economic stuff and we start getting into all the ways that we're fragmented? We, we usually tend towards divisiveness. And God's saying, my people speak peace. Bring peace. And how about spiritual I mean, intentionally spiritual, gospel-focused, church-oriented shalom. To, to, to establish churches that are in and for the city, but not just individually so, but to seek the peace and the welfare of the other churches in our city. To truly partner together and say, how can we love and bless one another rather than see each other as territorial competition or something which can happen unfortunately with churches 
If, if, we're, if, we're, if we're called to show the world what peace and unity look like, then what better place to start than in the household of God, not only within the way that we live in community as Edgewater Baptist Church, but the way that we live in community with all brother and sisters around us who are in churches that are holding up the same word and preaching the same gospel and the same Lord, faith, baptism. Why? Why, 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 why be motivated to, to seek this kind of peace? Because again, one day we're going to get called home. And you can just wait for that. You, you can hide in a closet. You can just sort of like, wait, all right, Jesus, take the wheel. Come soon, right? But I don't think that's the heart of God. I think the heart of God is for you to say, I want to be called home with as many of my neighbors as I can. Right? With as many of my neighbors as I can. I want them to see Jesus. I want them to see our good deeds and glorify God who's in heaven. They're going to bow the knee one way or the other when Jesus comes back. I want them to bow in reverent hope and life and not in fear and death. Do you want that? Seek Seek the peace of our city. Be a church in and for the city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that directs the way we live. Father, would you increase our heart for your your will, your your love. Lord, please, in all seriousness, we we long to be a, a place where people can see the peace of God. Because if they're seeing the peace of God, they're seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our peace is in Christ. He has made our peace. Peace with you, peace with one another. And even peace with our enemy. Even peace with the world. Even peace with those that, that before we knew you, before we were, we were touched by the love of God in Christ Jesus, we would and we did despise. We justified opportunities to say, well, who really is my neighbor? And yet you've upended that. And I thank you, God, that you've placed us where we are. This is, this is not an easy city to be in. It's not an easy city to love. There's a lot of hard soil around this city, Lord, around this neighborhood. But Father, we would ask that you would, you, by your Spirit's work in us, this is not, this is not what we will accomplish, but what you will accomplish through us, would you tend the soil, till it up, As we scatter the seeds, Lord, water the seeds, would you produce the growth? Would you bring peace to our neighbors? Would there be more and more people who are gathered here together as a body of Christ and in churches around this city who can say, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us, worthy of all of our praises. Build your kingdom here. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.